This season of Out Alive is brought to you by Garmin. Stay tuned until the end of the show where you'll hear this bonus survival story. And I, I remember falling backwards and seeing the, the skyline behind me. And it's, it's all mountains there. And just seeing these, these peaks flipped upside down because I was tumbling backwards and thinking just how strange it was. And that was probably the last thing I was ever going to see. Our first story is about quicksand. More of a punchline than a nightmare, really. We're used to seeing quicksand on Saturday morning cartoons or bubbling at the feet of Indiana Jones. But those scenes belie the true danger. No, you can't actually sink over your head in most cases. People aren't dense enough, but the threat of quicksand is very real. You don't drown in quicksand, you get stuck. So stuck. Cast in concrete stuck. And like any good trap, the more you struggle, the more involved you become. What starts off as a caught foot soon becomes a leg. And the more you fight, the hungrier the sand gets until you've sunk up to your torso in a lonely canyon in Utah with darkness falling and snow swirling all around. You can't even help yourself because the amount of force it takes to extract a person from quicksand is the same as it takes to lift a small car. So all there is to do is wait at the mercy of night and hope that someone, anyone, arrives in time. I made a decision to survive. You're in that survival mode. The the idea of dying wasn't in my head. I knew immediately it was a worst case scenario. I was in a fight for my life situation. Whenever you walk out on these trails, you're in their house. I'm Louisa Albanese, and you're listening to Out Alive by Backpacker. In each episode of this podcast, we'll bring you real stories of real people who survived the unsurvivable. I saw the rope zip through the rappel ring, and I couldn't do anything. Learn what went wrong, what went right, and how you can escape if the worst-case scenario happens to you. There is no way we would find anybody alive. Ryan Osman is a photographer from Mesa, Arizona, who is celebrating his anniversary with his girlfriend, Jessica. They decided to revisit the scene of their first hike in Zion National Park. They chose a popular beginner canyoneering route in the subway, which they planned to do as a day hike. We live in Mesa, and we were just going up there to hike because it was basically our one-year anniversary, and that, that was the first hike that we did together. Uh, was in Zion. We really just had just regular clothing, but we had the neoprene socks and the special water shoes that the water just runs through it so that your feet are supposed to get wet. But with the socks, they heat your feet up so they don't feel cold. It's it's pretty warm. And then we just had, you know, a light jacket on, pants and our camelbacks. We thought it would probably take us about eight to 10 hours. Even though it was only five miles, it was really hard hiking and There was a lot of places you had to climb up and over to get through. Tim Kanas is a Plateau District Ranger and a lead member of the search and rescue at Zion National Park. We asked him to describe what the subway route is like. I've worked at the Park Service since 2003. Zion is, is very well known for canyoneering. It's described as an easy canyoneering route, which is true. However, most people don't understand that canyoneering is already on the difficult level. We always tell people it is a route because there's no trail. You're kind of walking through the creek. You're walking on the side of the creek through boulders. You're climbing over logs. For, and it's, it's about four miles, four and a half miles to the formation, to the, the subway. 
we just started the hike at early in the morning. It was about eight o'clock AM and, uh, it was a nice day. It was, it was pretty sunny out and it wasn't snowing, but there was quite a bit of snow on the ground. We ended up finding a, a nice like stick walking stick that we could use to help us climb over and get through the water. And we got to this one part, there were spots of basically like mud all along the way. So like when you step in it, you know, your foot sinks to about the ankle and then you, you know, you just walk out of it. Everything's okay. So we'd come across a spot like that. Uh, it was pretty large size, probably about 50 foot by 50 foot, like a pond. And we stuck the stick in the ground just to see if, you know, you would sink or not. So we tested it first and it was fine. So we were started walking through it. And as we were walking, uh, a spot in the water basically just sunk where Jessica was walking forward. And she had dropped to her knees and put her hands out to catch herself. And she was kind of sinking, so she was freaking out a little bit. And I had just tried to get her to calm down, you know, just told her not to make a lot of movements because you'll sink faster. And so I was able to walk pretty close to her and help start picking her up out of it. And as I was picking her up out of it, I was able to get her hands up and then her her feet, she was able to lift out of it. And then basically she kind of jumped out to the solid ground. By that time, I didn't realize it, but my right leg had sunk all the way to my mid thigh and my left foot started sinking in to my knee. I was able to pull my left leg out pretty easily, but then when I went to pull my right leg out, I couldn't move it at all. And you know, I, I didn't know that I was completely stuck, so I kept trying to pull it out and I couldn't move at all. It just felt like it just completely locked all around my leg and my foot. And I was like, I realized at that time that I was stuck and I wasn't able to get it out. I had asked Jessica to, you know, come over here and try to help me dig out my leg. It got stuck, you know, so she had to walk carefully so she didn't get stuck again. So she was able to get close to me and, you know, we both started digging, the, digging at the sand and she had dropped down to her knees and she was digging with her hands and uh, she had her sweater on. I had my jacket on, everything. And as we were digging, you know, the water is ice cold, so your hands are just blood red and they're frozen within, you know, five minutes of being in there. At that point, you know, I kind of realized that we weren't going to be able to dig it out because the water would just replace the sand as soon as you moved any of it. So you couldn't get anywhere as you were digging through it. I, I told her to stop digging because nothing was going to be able to, to move. And she was just getting her clothes wet and it was freezing cold outside, so I didn't want her to keep getting wet. She had actually found a really good stick. It was about the size of me, it was about six foot. So I started sticking it down where my leg was and trying to budge out the sand and move my leg at the same time, just to free up the sand, but it just, nothing was working at all. It, I just was having no luck. Shane Hobel is no stranger on this show. He's the founder of the Mountain Scout Survival School and has been featured on the History Channel, New York Times, The New Yorker, CNN, and is the teacher of our own online outdoor survival course. We asked Shane to tell us, what is quicksand anyway? What is quicksand? Well, quicksand, you know, it's kind of a general term for loose sediment. It's a low point on the topography, which is where a lot of the water is settling. 
and the ground table filled with water, it's just so saturated, it really doesn't have much, no place to go. So what it's doing, it's mixing in with all of this other material and it's creating for this sort of um, loose cement-like texture. We experience this when the tide goes out and then the further we move out onto into the shore, uh, the sand there is heavily saturated the whole area and you find your feet sinking into it much, much easier than it would be further away from the shoreline. If you're near water or if you have the potential of going into ravines or any place by which it's the lower point of the topography, um, there is water present, that is something to keep in the back of your head. And it kind of doesn't matter where you are in the, the mountains and the woodlands, etc., and or in the jungles. You know, there are low points on the landscape where this occurs. So I stopped digging. You know, I started freaking out a little bit. Jessica started crying. I realized that I wasn't going anywhere. And we were five hours deep in the canyon, about five miles also. And there was nobody. We didn't see anybody the whole way there. We didn't see anybody at all. Jessica's, you know, begging me to keep digging and just keep trying to get it out. But it just wasn't going anywhere and nothing was happening. So I had, uh, I, I took my pack off and gave it to her, had her set it on the side where there was just dry land. And I took my shirt off and took my jacket off and everything so that I could just try to dig one last time as hard as I could. And within five minutes, my hands are frozen and my arms are, you know, red. I can't do anything. And I just knew that I wasn't moving. I wasn't gonna get out of there. Right then, you know, I basically just told her that she's going to have to go hike all the way back to the car so that she can get cell reception. She didn't really want to have to hike all the way back, and she didn't know that if she could make it either. But I told her that would be the only way that, that I'm going to get out of this is if I get help, and she'll have to, you know, hike all the way back. And we told each other that we loved each other and that, you know, we would see each other soon. And about... 30 minutes after she left, it started pouring snow. And so I was about to my mid-thigh on my right leg, deep in the sand, and then the water came up to my waist. So I, I could kind of relax my back of my leg on, you know, where it was stuck. But I was still having to hold myself up out of the water because I didn't want my whole body in the water because it was just, it was way too cold. So once it started snowing, I had put just my jacket on, so it was just a, a snow jacket on. And I put my arms inside of it, and I had a beanie on, so I, be I put the beanie over my face and put my head in my jacket and just breathed in, and, you know, it, it helped keep me warm. So once it started snowing, uh, you know, I, I got worried that, you know, I don't know how long it's going to snow, but there was a lot of clouds out there. Here's Tim Kanas again. I got the call, I think it was pretty late in the afternoon. I knew we had a storm coming in, and I'm really good at checking the weather because I'm a wilderness ranger. So I tend to check the weather every day just to kind of get an idea of what's coming in. And I knew there was a pretty big snowstorm coming in. And I got the call, and it was just kind of an odd dispatch call of, like, somebody stuck in quicksand in the, sub in the subway. And I it was, it was getting on dark. We still had some light left. Um but I remembered thinking as soon as I got the call, I said, man, if we're going to go in, we're going to be in, we're going to be hiking in the dark to start. I knew it would be really difficult for her to get back by herself because I had to help her up so many boulders on the way. And it took us five hours 
So I knew I had at least a good six to seven hour wait before anyone would come. All I could do was just watch the sun basically set all the way. And so I watched it cross the canyon and I just hope that she makes it because if she doesn't, it would have been my fault and neither one of us would have gotten out of there if she didn't make it. She was in pretty rough shape as far as cold. She said he was stuck up to his waist. And I thought, man, if this is truly what it is, if we might not be going to a live person. Kind of a defense mechanism, honestly, for rescuers of just like, you know, preparing for the worst because this could go bad. And, you know, instead of seeing it for the first time when you get there and seeing a, a body in the, in the creek, you're kind of reviewing it in your head like, okay, I might be seeing this. I was kind of looking at that reality, thinking, man, if he's been in there already for a lengthy amount of time, I think she said he'd been in there for like four hours or something, four or five hours or something already. And I thought, man, if by the time we get in there, even because I'm, I'm one of the faster hikers on staff, and I thought, even if we get in there, you know, things go perfectly, it, it's going to be seven hours but by the time I get to him, you know, from the time he was stuck until the time I can get to him. And uh, it was pretty cold. It was probably in the, in the 20s by the time we left the trailhead. So... The sun had gone down and it started snowing a lot again. It was it was a lot harder and bigger snow and I was just I was freezing cold at this point because it was nighttime and my body heat wasn't as strong as it was when I first got stuck. You know, she gave us a pretty good description of where he was and I thought, man, that is really far in there. And this hike crosses the river, crosses the creek probably, I don't know, forty times. I was in a dry suit. And I was moving up the drainage, and it just continually got more and more snowy, and I was, which made the travel really challenging. At this point, I was so tired that I couldn't really hold myself up with my arms anymore, and my waist was in so much pain from being caught where it was at in the sand. I had fallen asleep, and my back end fell into the water, and I, it woke me up because it was so cold. And now, now all my clothes are soaking wet again. You know, at that point, I just knew that if I fell back in the water that I wouldn't, I don't know if I would have been able to sit back up because I was too exhausted. So now I was just really cold. Everything was starting to freeze. And I had been in there so long and it, it was pitch black out. The only thing that was shining was this light in the canyon. I had pulled my head up out of my jacket. And when I saw that, the light, I thought it was a helicopter. And I, I couldn't hear anything, but I just thought with seeing the light that that's what it had to be. And I probably just kept waiting there for 15 minutes thinking, you know, the light was going to be a helicopter and it ended up being just the moon. I was just in a state that my mind wasn't really all there. And it had been dark for quite a while at that time. And I was just like, there was no possible way it would have taken her this long to get back and get somebody to help me. So, you know, at that point I figured that there's a good chance that she didn't make it out. So that was the that was the hardest part is uh, knowing that she didn't make it out most likely because it was, it had been too long. It was just, it was just way too long of a time. I pulled my arms back in my sleeves because they, they were frozen solid so they couldn't even move. And uh, I put my head back in my jacket and I, I basically just rested my neck in the Y of that stick that was in the ground. I couldn't hold myself up anymore, so I just was resting my neck on that. And it wasn't real stable, but it was enough to hold me up to where I, I didn't fall over. It probably been about another hour or hour and a half. I could hear somebody 
and I could sense like how the light hit your eyes. You can you can kind of see it. And I didn't know if I was dreaming that up or anything. So I just waited there and, you know, just kind of just let it go. I had headlamps and I had a streamlight, was continuing up the creek and just kept looking, thinking I was going to see a body or, or something. Potentially, maybe he's passed out and he's, you know, managed to stay afloat. I just, I pulled my head out and I just started yelling and I saw somebody with a flashlight. I was, I just kept yelling for them. I heard him calling and I, you know, I'd prepared myself so much for, for body that I, I, I it kind of took me back and I thought, man, I, is there somebody else up here? When Tim came up to me, he was, he was like, I don't know how you're alive. I figured that you would be in the water when I showed up. So I thought, well, I'm going to work. You know, being the only person there, I've got to keep myself safe. I cannot get stuck in this quicksand as well. He hikes the canyon a lot, I guess, and he was able to get back to me in under three hours. When he showed up, I, you know, I was, I had no energy. I could, I barely could yell to him and I, I couldn't feel my leg. Within the first hour of being stuck, I figured I would lose my leg at least at the minimum. So basically he got, he got to me and he's like, my crew is probably about an hour behind me. Um, so there were three others, but he was like, we'll try and get you out before they get here. He had a pulley system that he wrapped around my waist. It's basically a mechanical advantage, four to one system with the uh, ropes and a couple sets of pulleys. So I tied off onto a rock, a uh, big boulder, and then uh, I tied off onto his thigh with a chunk of webbing. So we were gonna try that. He would ratchet the lever, and it was just basically felt like it was ripping my hip out of the socket of my leg. I'm gonna rip this guy's knee, knee right out of the socket if I continue this, because you know, for every pound of pressure that I pull, it, it multiplies by three to four. So if I'm pulling 50 pounds, it's pulling 150 to 200 pounds on his leg. And I was like, this isn't gonna work, we gotta stop. I ended up trying to do a lot of other things um, sticking sticks and logs in to try to change the viscosity of the quicksand. Um, you know, maybe make it harder, maybe maybe pop his foot out, maybe change the area where the quicksand had formed. Um, it started throwing rocks and things like that. Just nothing seemed to help at all. But what we realized is that the area that I sank in was basically as big as my leg because you could stand all around me and not sink. And it was probably a, maybe a little over an hour and they, they showed up, there was three others. And they come up and, you know, he, he tells them, you know, to be careful, don't fall into areas that can sink, just stay along this path that he created with rocks. So I just told him to, you know, do whatever he has to do to get it out. The ratchet that he had is, it's a, it'll pull three pounds per square inch. So he said, it'll rip my leg out. He just doesn't know what it'll do to my leg. But I just told him, you know, it doesn't matter. Just, uh, just get out of, just let's get out of here. So we put it around my kneecap behind my knee and strapped it to a rock as Tim was digging and the other two were lifting my shoulders and I felt it move just a little bit and I, I yelled at her to just keep going because it was moving and it was, it was in so much pain. It was the worst pain I've ever felt. It felt like my knee was just being ripped out of the socket from my waist. And about five minutes of doing that, it just came, it came free and they, they were able to rip it out and lift me up and dragged me over to the to dry land and sat me down. That moment of relief and then it switches very quickly to, okay, now we have a patient and his leg's probably pretty messed up. So once we popped him out, everybody kind of took a, took a deep breath and said, all right, let's take a real quick break, you know, 
he didn't have any feeling. He didn't have any what we call CSM in the medical field, circulation, sensation, and movement. So he didn't have any CSM, which is extremely concerning. So they dragged me over to this area where they had a, a hot, warm blanket. They had got all my clothes off and threw me in the bag, the sleeping bag, threw some heating packs in there. And, and literally within about uh, 15 minutes, my body was back to normal heat. Uh, my leg was still frozen, but everything else I felt, I actually felt okay. Um, so we, we ended up making a fire, which is illegal in the park. <laughs> but, uh, you know, it's, it was kind of necessary. All the rescuers, once we got Ryan wrapped up and uh, kind of good to go, and his leg was starting to get a little hotter, and it was we were starting to get just a touch of feeling. Uh, we had a really faint pulse coming back, and it's like, okay, this is going well. I think we're going to be able to spend the night. And then Grand Canyon will haul us out in the morning. Yeah, I remember the dispatch call. Uh, you know, the, the, I know the incident commander told me that you know, a couple of days later, he said, I could hear you shivering on the radio. Everybody just basically went to sleep as quick as, quick, quick as we could, even though it was freezing out. With the fire, it wasn't as bad. So we, fail, we fell asleep, and uh, I wake up the next morning, and there was probably about two inches of snow on my sleeping bag. And it was just pouring snow, and it was probably about 6 a.m. You know, we kept checking in, kept checking in, and he finally said, you know, Grand Canyon's not going to be able to launch. He sent the two guys back, and before he had told the other guys, given them the okay to come in and bring extra supplies, the weather cleared. Almost no clouds at all, and the sun was bright and shining, and uh, basically they said, this is the only time that we're going to have today to get out. So we're gonna try and do it right now. It was probably about noon, and within 15 minutes, the helicopter was above us, and that was just the, like finally the best feeling after seeing Tim, that I, was, I knew I was gonna be okay and get out of there. Once I got into the helicopter, um, they flew me to the ambulance, which was waiting about three minutes away, and got me in the ambulance and um, took me to the hospital. At the hospital, uh, I still hadn't looked at my leg because I didn't know what condition it was in and I didn't want to see if it, you know, anything had happened to it. I just didn't want to know. And as soon as we get to the hospital, you know, they told me that Jessica was there waiting. And so I get into my room and within five minutes, uh, Jessica comes in and, you know, I just, we both started crying so much because it had been, you know, over 24 hours and it was just, uh, it was such a good feeling to finally be with her and know that she was okay and that I was gonna be okay. Within about 10 minutes of being there, the doctor came in and he wanted to x-ray my leg. And so he had lifted the sheet up and that's when I had looked at my leg and it looked completely normal other than the fact that it was huge from being swollen, but there was nothing wrong with it at all. And I, I, I couldn't believe it. I didn't know how that was even possible. I, didn't, I just didn't even know if I was going to be able to keep my leg. So they got it x-rayed and they said that nothing was broken. And I didn't have anything dislocated from when it was pulled out because that, it felt like it snapped. But they said nothing was broken and everything was fine with my leg. And the doctor wanted me within 30 minutes to try to walk. And I, I told him, I was like, there's no way I'm going to be able to walk my I can't feel my leg. And he's like, well, you know, there's nothing wrong with it. And you should be able to walk, honestly. And 
So I, I had a nurse and Jessica helped me get up and I was able to walk on it. And uh, within another 30 minutes, I was out of the hospital. Here again is survival expert Shane Hobel. We all know some of the general rules because we kind of grew up with quicksand as part of our cartoons. Um, the more you move in quicksand, the deeper you're going to actually settle into it. What it's doing is it's allowing, you know, your feet are moving and it's moving the material away from your feet, allowing the foot to go even further into it. The problem with it is it creates a suction. And when you try to pull straight out, the material is now wrapped itself around your leg and trying to pull. And it's literally like a piston, if you would, like a shock absorber. And it's a lot of pressure that you're trying to alleviate. So some of the tricks to this is if you find yourself in quicksand, um, walking in the landscape with a nice tall walking stick is always a good thing. Um, it helps with support balance. You can move things out of the way. You can lift ferns, see if there's any snakes or other things, unmentionables, kind of clear things, move the cobwebs out of your space. And then of course you fall into quicksand. Uh, you can work your way and slide this stick down one of the legs and then opening just an air channel to help alleviate that pressure, helping to pull that leg back out. Some people will find themselves laying either on forward, cross the stick, put it across your body, and then lay on top of it, helping to create a fulcrum, helping to alleviate some of the pressure down below, and then you can work your way out by getting horizontal. Uh, some people have taken the stick and put it behind them, leaning backwards onto the stick, and again, sort of getting into a prone position, and that's where you want to now distribute the energy as much as possible, your weight, your body mass, over a larger area. As for Ryan... His healing process continues every day. We went hiking up uh, in Sedona like two weeks ago. It was a little bit difficult to hear the wind because that's all I heard the whole time I was stuck is the wind and the water. So as soon as I hear that, you know, it brings back everything. But I'm able to know that I'm okay now and that it didn't hit me as hard. So I, I was able to enjoy it. It felt good to be out there. It still felt good. This season of Out Alive is brought to you by Garmin. Together, we bring you a bonus survival story from someone who made it out alive thanks to their Garmin InReach satellite device. Here's ultra runner and mountaineer Adam Campbell to share his story. My approach to, to mountain travel was sort of, I, I started out as an ultra runner and um, I was starting to move more and more into speed mountaineering. And so really trying to do like technical ridge link ups and uh, there's an area in Canada called Rogers Pass, which is it's one of Canada's national parks. And uh, there's this one ridge traverse called the Horseshoe Traverse. And essentially, it's a link up of 14 peaks in the area. And you're traveling across glaciated terrain. I had two partners, very, very competent um, uh, mountain runners and climbers. And um, we, we were looking to try to do this big link up in a single push. So it was quite ambitious. So we were moving, you know, quite light and fast, uh, which has some inherent risks with it. Um, but we, we had all the right gear for the day. We had a, an in-reach with me, which in the ca uh, Canadian backcountry, we often don't have cell signal uh, where we are. So it's, uh, it's something that um, I carry with me, and especially the, the new little mini, which, which weighs nothing and it fits in a pack quite easily. 
And so uh, my two partners were moving a little bit faster than I was through the train. And honestly, my ego was taking a bit of a beating because I just wasn't feeling that good at the moment. And so I was kind of rushing a little bit to keep up with them. And so they moved through this, this area. And when I got to it, I moved through exactly the same area they did. And I pulled on this block. And this, this block the size of a small refrigerator, essentially, pulled out on me. And uh, next thing I knew, I was tumbling backwards down this series of uh, ledges. Yeah, it was, it was a really horrific feeling because uh, I was about 300 feet up at the time. And I, I remember falling backwards and seeing the, the skyline behind me. And it's, it's all mountains there. And just seeing these, these peaks flipped upside down because I was tumbling backwards and thinking just how strange it was that that was probably the last thing I was ever going to see. You know, my head would hit, my feet would hit, and falling down these the series of ledges. And uh, next thing I knew, um, I wasn't moving anymore. And uh, I, I was face down, um, and all I could see was a pool of blood underneath me, and I was in a pile of scree. Luckily, I have two really competent partners with me. They were able to run down to me quite quickly. They, they were convinced that they were coming to a body retrieval because of how far I fell and just how severe the terrain was. Because they saw me fall. They heard me scream, and they watched me fall. But when they got down to me, I was actually able to talk to them. I was somewhat coherent. And uh, I was carrying the inReach in my pack. And so I told my, my one partner, Nick Elson, uh, where it was in my pack. And we deployed the inReach, which alerted the authorities. And then from there, Nick was able to go and actually um, connect with the search and rescue team to let them know exactly where we were. And so quite quickly, within half an hour, they, a helicopter had flown over us and had spotted us. And the helicopter evacuated me out of there and uh, flew me to uh, a major trauma center. And it turned out that I'd, I'd broken my T8 to T11 vertebra on my back. I'd sheared off the top of my iliac crest, which is the top of my hip bone. And I had deep lacerations down to the bone across my body. Um, it, was, it was a really, really traumatic experience. I was suffering from a lot of blood loss. Um, and so if, if it hadn't, if the rescuers hadn't come as quickly as they did, uh, if we hadn't been able to alert them as quickly as we did, and well, then it would have been a very different story for me. You need to align as many things as possible in your favor so that if things do go wrong, um, you've at least maximized your chance of survival. So basically, don't go into the backcountry anymore, especially around Canada, without having some form of communication. Um, if I know there's going to be cell signal in the area, then I'll have my phone with me. And if not, then we'll definitely have that in reach with me. It's one thing to travel light and fast in the mountains, and it feels really, really freeing, but uh, you also need to have the right amount of gear for when things go wrong, because things can and do go wrong. I'm Backpacker Skills Editor Zoe Gates, and here's a safety tip from Garmin. When traveling over talus, scree, or large boulders, stay nimble and alert, ready to leap away if a rock shifts beneath you. Test the stability of boulders with one foot or a trekking pole before putting your full weight on them. Avoid traveling over talus in wet or slippery conditions. This episode was produced by me, Louisa Albanese, along with Zoe Gates. Our story editing and sound design is by Wild Acorns Media. Our script writer is Casey Lyons. This episode was mixed by Jason McDaniel from Electric Audio Inc. Thank you to Ryan Osmond, Tim Kanas, and Shane Hobel for sharing your stories and perspectives. If you enjoyed this episode of Out Alive, please subscribe and leave us a review.